Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For me, front and center, how do you handicap so many of these big political issues? The headline coming from the team over at BlackRock and Russ Kostrick as follows. The biggest risks are the hardest to quantify. Trade friction, Brexit, and US 2020 elections. BlackRock's Russ Kostrick joining me around the table right now. Good morning to you, Russ. Good morning. What do you do with that? That's your line. What on earth do you do with it? I think all you can do is try to think about the link from the policy to what it may mean to the real economy. And in some of these, it's too far out. Uh, we can't really handicap the 2020 election. The trade we're dealing with in real time, and what we do know is that you've probably put the manufacturing sector in a mild recession. Thankfully, so far, that has not leaked over to the household sector, which is why I think the economy is in decent shape. CNBC reporting in the last 24 hours, those talks will commence, I believe, October 10th, going into October 11th. Russ, how hopeful are you? The president talking up the prospect of a deal. It's getting closer, forever closer. I think at this point, you know, most investors would be happy with a truce, not a deal. You know, the, the reality is a lot of these issues, particularly around technology, intellectual property, state sponsorship, these go to the, the core of the Chinese financial model. I don't think many people expect a long-lasting deal. What people would like to see is a de-escalation of the tension, perhaps a rollback of some of the recent tariffs, and that this just goes to simmer for a while and is off of the boil. I know a company that would love to see that, and it's Micron, the chip maker, releasing earnings, and the forecast for profit really not good at all. The forecast for profit damaged by the trade tension, the stock down by 5.86% in early trading this morning. The damage is being done. Whether you look at the Micron profit forecast, whether you look at the economic confidence in Europe this morning for the Eurozone, a four-year low, is that what you just continue to see as well, Russ, in the not-too-distant future, just a drip feed of more negative economic data? Jonathan, I think you, you expressed exactly in the, in the right way. Some damage has already been done. And even if you, you get a temporary truce, you know, if you're a CEO, you're a CFO, you're thinking about your next large capital investment, you're thinking about where to build a factory, even if you have a temporary cessation of the friction, it is very hard to have a lot of confidence about that next decision, which means a lot of this is getting put off. We've had a lot of volatility in between, but to your point, stocks have done nothing for 18 months for us. Yeah, Do you have a high conviction call at the moment in this market? I think the high conviction call is there are segments of the market, and I think technology has been one, the U.S. household sector is another, where you've seen companies be able to generate you know, phenomenal cash flow growth, maintain very high margins despite all the uncertainty. So we're looking for those fast rivers. We've been raising our weight in technology. We've been raising our weight to U.S. consumer names because we do think uh, that we're not going to see a recession, and these names can continue to grow even with the uncertainty. What do you hear from people? One of the great affinities of Russ Koster is he's your first-rate academics, and you actually go out and talk to a lot of people as well. If we're very range-bound right now, what's the mood on which way we range, particularly in the equity markets? Is it just an assumption that we're waiting for news and then we break higher? I think most people probably, you know, when you speak to individual investors, you speak to advisors, they're nervous. And if anything, I think the break higher would be the surprise. People are worried about trade. They're worried about Brexit. They're worried about U.S. politics. Again, all these things that are very hard to quantify. And everyone still has a very fresh memory of not only 2008, 
of last December. You know, that very sharp, abrupt, near, near bear market in stocks has left people nervous about these quick flash crashes that can take stocks down 10, 20%. And Russ, an economy that's at stall speed. I caught up with Pimco in the last 24 hours who just put out their cyclical outlook. Going into 2020, they're looking for 1% GDP growth in the United States in early 2020. Are we prepared for 1% GDP growth in America? I think we would be a bit more constructive. If you have 1% growth, then I do think you're going to have some more volatility in stocks because the, the earnings estimates for 2020, 10% growth are going to be very hard to hit in a 1% real GDP environment. We'd be a bit more constructive. I think you're decelerating towards trend, maybe a bit below. But to my mind, that's still closer to 2 than to 1%. Link your world with nominal GDP. If we get a dampening or stability but subpar nominal GDP, how does that fold into revenues and then down the statement to earnings? It, it means that your revenue growth, if the aggregate is constrained, and this goes back to my point about fast rivers of cash flow, I think it does mean that investors that are going to go back. That was such a good song. Do you like that? Emmylou Harris did it. Fast, like that? Fast, ru- Emmy fast Lou rivers Harris. to cash flow. It was cash just flow? after the Graham Parker era. Fast rivers to cash flow. Carry on, Carry on. that on my Carry Spotify on. account. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, who, you know, this is what the, 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 tr- the dynamic has been really for the whole post-crisis environment. You don't have that tailwind of faster nominal GDP growth. So the question is, which companies are in segments of the market that can generate top-line growth and raise margins? And those are the companies that can command that premium on their multiple. Where do you find them? What sector? I'd say you find them in technology. You find them in software. You find them in segments of the consumer you know, uh, segment. You know, look, we're talking about a lot of gloom and doom. One thing that's worth bringing up is that the household sector is in decent shape. You've got healthy growth in disposable income. You've got healthy growth in disposable income among parts of the, the household sector that have the greatest propensity to spend. Savings is up. Uh, disposable income relative to debt is up. You know, If you don't have something blow up on trade, our view is the household sector is in good shape right now. Jonathan Gollub of Credit Suisse has got a decent take on this as well. The culprit at the moment that everyone is blaming for decelerating GDP is quite clearly the trade tension. And this was a quote that came from the team at Credit Suisse yesterday. By contrast, the data shows that 2018 stimulus-driven above-trend economy is now mean-reverting. Weaker non-recessionary economics should limit stock returns until the data shows signs of bottoming. So I guess the the one trillion dollar question is when do we start to see signs of bottoming in this decelerating data worldwide, Russ? So I actually think there is an answer to that. And my guess is that you will start to see some stabilization in early 2020. And the reason I say that is one thing that has gone right and why stocks have had you know what has still been a relatively good year is that central banks pivoted early in the year. And when you think about that lag between monetary accommodation and the real mm-hmm. economy, it's six to nine months. So that tells me as yeah. we get to the end of the year, we should start to see some signs of stabilization. Very good. Russ Koster, thank you so Great much to see for you, BlackRock. Russ. Nice briefing as well. Oh, 
always interesting as we talk to Global Wall Street, when a major bank makes major changes, it has been a train wreck at Wells Fargo. There's no other way uh, to put it. And within all that is the history of the bank, uh, John Farrell, Crocker National, First Interstate, Bank of North America, First Security, mating with Norwest, and finally pulling in from the deep south, the venerable Wachovia Bank, and you distill it all into what John Stumpf wrought. I was on stage with Mr. Stumpf days, weeks before he was shown the door, and uh, it has been basically, I'm going to say what? Four years of chaos, three years of chaos. Tim Sloan was a follow-up act. Have been you been him it, since it, March? When you went over to Wells Fargo, did you sit in the stagecoach over on Third Avenue? I haven't seen the stagecoach. It's on there, Avenue. right in the lobby. Is that how yeah. you get to work in the mornings? That's how they used to get to work. It is a venerable name, and boy, is it troubled. Blimbo Finance reporter Shanali Basset dropping by the studio to catch up with us. Wells Fargo does indeed have a new CEO. Talk to me about the new man at the top, Shanali. It's crazy. Charlie Scharf has only been at the top of Bank of New York Mellon for about two years, and now he's making his next big move to Wells Fargo. Much harder story to clean up. Uh, you know, a point that we had made earlier, interestingly, he's had a lot of experience with regulators also. I mean, he was one of the bank CEOs that was down in Washington earlier this year, um, and so he's going to be a very interesting choice to see how he, he how he deals with the rest of the regulatory issues. The Cleanup Act, it's a long list. What's at the top? Oh, well, my goodness. <laughs> well, first of all, maybe the, the Fed's asset cap. Wells Fargo cannot grow because the Fed said it cannot after so many issues that it had um, in terms of the fake account scandal. So talk to me about what he has to do <laughs> what so he that, has- that they can get that lifted. To get that lifted, uh, to make sure. So remember, Wells Fargo, this is an outsider for the first time running the bank. John Stump, Tim Sloan. We had people who, and even Alan Parker, the general counsel, who was a lawyer by training, but still, you know, seen as part of the inside of the bank. To clean up a culture is a difficult thing to prove that you can do. And so Charles Scharf may uh, bring in more people, right? That's one big thing he might do. And then he also has to show that he can turn around how fundamentally the bank behaves and how it treats customers. The legacy of this, and this goes back to Sandy Wild, saw him on with Maria the other day. It's good to see Mr. Wild out and about. Is James Diamond was thrown out to Bank One off of commercial credit, and he had assistance. And one of them was the young, young intern who is now going to take over Wells Fargo. And along the way, this guy ran, am I correct, he ran retail for James Diamond at Chase, and I think they did pretty well. Is he going to JP Morganize (laughs) Wells Fargo? I mean, that's certainly a thing to think, right? Well, Wells- What's the board think? What's the board think? Well, remember, Wells Fargo, unlike JP Morgan, Wells Fargo is primarily a consumer bank. So when you say JP Morgan, you also think about sales and trading and investment banking and all of these other things. Right. I think, and it's Wells Fargo does have all of that, but it, uh, primarily cleaning up the consumer businesses is what he's going to have to do. So JP Morgan, JP Morgan is the, the new financial supermarket, right? It's the, it's, it's everything to everybody. So making it that is not right. really the game here. It's cleaning it up. Psychologically, where is the center of Wells Fargo? I mean, we, you know, the heritage of this job is the is Pony Express and the Stagecoach, which they brand with going from St. Louis West, you know, chased by Indians. I Did mean, that's a stereotype. How, how do you know all this stuff? No, it's part of the fabric of our, our history. Is Wells Fargo is a huge deal, the Pony Express. Yeah. But, in a, you know, some of it's mythology and some of it's actually accurate. But, but Shanali, where psychologically, I mean, we, J.P. Morgan, New York. Park Avenue. Yeah, you're asking a Where's fundamental Wells question. Fargo? Well, Wells Fargo is based in San Francisco, right? So it's a San Francisco bank. Remember after Wachovia also, they have 
deep roots in the South as well. And so again, not like JP Morgan, which has this huge global expansion plan. This is America's bank, right? And uh, what he has to deal with is mortgages to Americans across the country, right? That's a very different thing from where he was just at Bank of New York Mellon, which is yeah. custo- it's, a, it's custody, it's clearing service. It's really much more plumbing of the financial system. Let's go back to the beginning of this conversation, mm-hmm. the cap on their ability to grow, mm-hmm. their ability to remove that cap and then grow. Let's pretend the cap didn't exist. Right. How easy would it be to get this company growing again? Oh, well, I mean, it's really... In 20 seconds. (laughs) Not easy. (laughs) Right, not easy. It's definitely a catch-up game here. You have the biggest growing faster, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs getting into Wells Fargo's businesses with the consumer. And so how do you catch up to that when you do have all these regulatory problems? I'm not sure. Does he clean house? I know it's too early to say that, but... possible. 20 or 30 people, does he bring them from BNY Mellon or does he... What's he do? Or can I tell you something, let alone BNY Mellon, what about JP Morgan? Yeah. Is he going to go back to his yeah. old shop and say, hey, I need you guys to help me here? Uh, Shanali Bassick, thank you so much. Good to Our see chief you, financial Shanali. correspondent. John, she uh, loves a bit of news, doesn't she? So she goes, she's breaking and Just scooping. running around the newsroom. <laughs> yeah, all that. Lindsay Newman is in London with Chatham House, U.S. and America's program senior research fellow. When she was at Yale a few years ago, there was partisan divide of the 19th century. We're redoing it right now, and she brilliantly captures it this morning in a note on all we've observed in Washington as well. I led with that, Lindsay, an hour and a half ago with our Kevin Cirilli, and that I'm fascinated how the Senate Republicans, led by McConnell of Kentucky, how they actually adapt to fact and opinion given this modern partisan divide. What will you look for from Senator McConnell? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, and it's very kind of you to say it was just a few years ago I was at Yale. Thank you you very much, Sean. Um, So, you know, right now we've seen the whistleblower report as well as the transcript. We're getting a more complete picture of um, sort of the background of what will likely form the basis of this formal impeachment inquiry that Pelosi has authorized as of Tuesday. Um, interestingly, overnight, a lot of Senate Republicans were saying they hadn't ha- yet had time to read the report, uh, the whistleblower report. Um, but what we're looking for is, any, you know, so far they're all just saying at, at most that it's troubling. Um, but as sort of we're seeing polling around public appetite shifting, perhaps um, up, up about to the highest levels um, during yeah. Trump's presidency towards impeachment, will this prospect of an impeachment inquiry going forward, not just through the House, but to the Senate um, and all the details that are perhaps well, going to come out right before the 2020 election, um, in, in fact, will that push them to have a more tempered view um, right. and and pull back some of that unmitigated support that they continue to give Trump at this point. I was thunderstruck yesterday by the difference between Lieutenant Mueller, who served heroically in Vietnam, his leadership was acclaimed as a frontline lieutenant in Vietnam and the way he was treated by Republicans versus the vice admiral yesterday, you know, with his leadership across any number of, of duties with the SEALs, where the Republicans 
are almost at the point where they can't posture the postures of the last three years. Have they run out of gas with this impeachment process? Or do you look for them to coalesce and defend their president? You know, it, it's certainly going to be a bit of a mix of both. Um, there will certainly be those who continue to support President Trump. But right now, the information that's come out between the whistleblower report and the transcript, they're, everybody's sort of trying to digest this information. Um, what's, what's, what is you know, troubling to take the Republican word here is that the, the whistleblower report, you know, you, you're hearing, are we going to find a smoking gun? And, and this is all just li- linguistics and language. But what it does provide, first and foremost, is a roadmap. And in particular, it's a roadmap that includes details that are already corroborated by the transcript, not the least of which is information around, you know, uh, encouraging a further investigation into CrowdStrike, encouraging this further investigation into Biden, encouraging working with Giuliani and, and the Attorney General Barr, all of which uh, we, we saw, in, in fact, in the transcript that the White House ultimately released. Lindsay, are we dealing with any legal issues here or purely political issues? Good question. Really smart. Well, that, that is an excellent question. And when we when we talk about impeachment, you know, we all have to remember impeachable offenses are treason, bribery, and these high crimes and misdemeanors. And President Gerald Ford so famously famously said, "High crimes and misdemeanors are just really whatever the House of Representatives of the day thinks that they are." But what we're talking about with high crimes and misdemeanors, and I think that's where um, the the, Democrat, the House Democrats are going to be focusing their attention, is we're talking about abuse of trust, abuse of office, unbecoming conduct. Um, and there's, that's quite a large bucket. Uh, the, the founding fathers of the Constitution you know, intended it to be quite a large bucket that uh, official, presidential in particular, behavior could, could be captured by. Lindsay, these are accusations, of course, that the Democrats have been throwing at the president since really since day one. There is a concern among many that they've spent so much political capital in doing so that they're going to struggle to bring the public along this time around. How do you think that's going to play out? So there are two key stories. The first is the public sentiment one, which is the one that you're alluding to and I mentioned earlier, which we're starting to see is very, very preliminary, but polling that's been done since Pelosi made her announcement has suggested that public sentiment is inching towards impeachment. Now, there does seem to be the second part of the story, still partisan divide, right? It's still very low amongst Republicans, something, you know, in the just single, high single digits into into low double digits. Um, But the partisan divide issue is key because Democrats want to move quickly on this because they don't want this dragging through 2020, taking up all of the attention, um, because ultimately, you know, some of the potential um, individuals who are going to lose out from this are anybody whose name is not Biden and Warren who are front running the Democratic side right now, because the attention moves away from health care. It moves away from uh, immigration and gun control and all these issues that the, you know, the vibrant Democratic field is dealing is, you know, is raising and just gets focused on impeachment. Obviously, Biden um, is coming out very strongly well, to address these issues. And then Warren, who's, you know, who's surging in the polls. Let me be Republican for a moment. Is a constructive plan here to just delay in a collegiate Way. I mean, it takes a process and is, is the best, not weapon, but best strategy of the president's supporters to just stretch things out by a day here, a week here, a weekend there. It's a good question, Tom, but I don't know how they do that if Democrats seem to think they already have a majority in the House. And that's what they need to pass this along to the Senate. So they'll just need a majority um, when they, once they drop the articles of impeachment. And so that will... So, 
Republican delay tactics, um, whatever okay. they may be, uh, it's still going to land in the Senate. Lindsey Newman, if thank Democrats you. Democrats well, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I meant to Don't worry, Lindsay. Finish. Tom does this. He stamps all over Lindsay. the guests and then they don't complete their thoughts. Lindsay Newman, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you in London with Chatham House uh, this morning. I'm looking at the it markets. Might, it might have it, been a vital conclusion it was, to I, the answer. I know. I'm sorry. It's Friday. Give me a break. I'm focused on <laughs> Arsenal uh, menu Monday. Why don't you bring in uh, the woman who writes beautifully terse notes for Rabobank? She is fantastic. They're a joy to read. Her name is Jane Foley, Rabobank Head of Foreign Exchange Strategy, joining us out of London. Jane, great to have you with us. Let's just talk about Michael Saunders, shall we? The hawk at the Bank of England, turning very dovish. Your thoughts? Well, indeed, he used to be a, uh, a hawk. And this is why perhaps his, his comments are, are, are ringing a, a even more dovish tone than if any, any of the other members of the Bank of England were to say this. Now, of course, what he is, uh, or what the Bank of England official guidance has said, and, in, and this was printed even just a few weeks ago in their, their last policy meeting, was that even on a, on, a, on a smooth Brexit, even if a deal was done, uh, well, we could see an interest rate hike, and that would be because there would be an unleashing of demand and what Saunders is saying is that global growth or softer global growth is actually opening up what he says a modest amount of spare capacity. So he is basically saying that the headwinds uh, to growth probably mean that even on a smooth Brexit now, we would probably see an interest rate cut. Now, the money market, of course, had already been pricing that in, but his comments did reinforce that move. So the market began to think, well, perhaps we will see the interest rate cut by maybe the middle of next year. Jane, what are your thoughts on that economic argument that we had a supply side problem for the last three years? That was the basic argument of the Bank of England, that the rate of acceleration, the rate of where we limit out in the United Kingdom has come lower. And therefore, you don't need much demand to bump up against supply constraints. Therefore, rates need to go up a little bit. That used to be the argument, Jane. What's changed? What's changed is, of course, really Germany and, and the global economy. I mean, if we look back to the year of the referendum, 2016, and if we go into 2017, what we saw in, in 2017 was the backdrop in, in the Eurozone being far better than expected. The political outcomes in, say, the French election uh, were better than expected. Uh, we didn't have this rise of, of populism that many people had assumed. The growth data, almost from the 1st of January, were coming in much better than expected. So if you like, the better... The better uh, backdrop in the eurozone particularly with respect to, to growth was 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 protecting the uk economy it was it was giving allowing all boats to rise if, if you like and, and now of course we have the mm. opposite we've got the german industrial sector in recession markets talking about the german economy uh, potentially being close to to falling into recession pmi data across the eurozone they've been falling lower now for almost two years so that is not a very pretty backdrop and that of course comes <laughs> against the the bigger global backdrop of slowdown in China, slowdown in global growth. And, and, and therefore, can you get the UK economy to self-sustaining, if you like, mm. um, behave in a way that we need an, an interest rate hike when all of these global headwinds are going yeah. the wrong direction? Jane, what's so scary about your research is you'll always have a chart where you can extrapolate it worldwide. You do that with New Zealand. You have a spectacular chart wondering if quantitative easing in New Zealand leads to house price inflation. Let's take that globally, and it goes right into the repo debate here in the United States. 
Does Jane Flo Foley and the team at Rabobank figured out that a QE expansion actually reflates an economy? Can can you state that? Well, you know, this is interesting because I think you can definitely see signs of, of this. I mean, um, of course, they haven't used quantitative easing in New Zealand yet, but they have got very low interest rates for the New Zealand economy. And this is the same, of course, for, for all developed economies. And, and you can look at... You can look at um, um, various parts of the globe. You can look at Germany, you can look at parts of Canada, you can yeah. look at um, New Zealand, Australia, you can look at um, Sweden, um, and all of these countries, London, have inflated house prices. And, and this, of course, is something which many central bankers have denied. Central bankers... Exactly. They're all saying no, and you're saying, wait a minute. Well, you know, some of the smaller central bankers haven't denied it. Now, this is interesting. If you go up to Scandinavia, um, if you look at Sweden, when they do talk about this more openly, they are concerned about the impact of, of house prices. And, and it's not house prices per se. It's basically when people chase, particularly young people who haven't had a house before, if they chase house prices higher, they end up with an awful lot of household debt. And, of course, this is a, a real concern if, if, if yeah. This begins to tip over. That's the real concern. And also, it's inequality. And, and of course, we are hearing an awful lot more about in, inequality. If asset prices go higher, of course, it's, it's the There's wealthy the chase. that own assets, and not the poor people. So there are so many aspects of this. And, and I think now, if we go into another round of quantitative easing from maybe central banks like New Zealand or Australia, where they haven't used it before, perhaps they're more aware of these potential okay. side effects. I mean, this is brilliant. And John, Russ Kostrich mentioned this today in his travels with BlackRock. He says the chase for yield now is distortive. I remember being in a news conference with Governor Carney and he was asked about the housing bubble in the United Kingdom. And it was in London where things were really blowing up. It was in and around 2014. That's when you had the four bedrooms in Kensington? I wish. And Jane, you might remember this line as well. Governor Carney turned around and I remember being in the room and he said, we don't set monetary policy for inside the circle line. And essentially what he was saying is that if there was a problem, it was in London and it wasn't their problem. And Jane, these are the kind of things that I actually hear from monetary policymakers sometimes, that they, they focus on the broader story and these pockets of risk-taking that they don't think are systemic, they just assume it's not their problem. Jane, what do you make of that approach? Well, I think really what we know about monetary policy, whether or not this is quantitative easing or interest rate policy, is that it is a blunt tool. And if you use a blunt tool, then you are more likely to have you know, these, these side effects. So we have seen in some countries, um, Australia being one of them, Canada another one, where they have used macroprudential measures. And these were perhaps to control some of the side effects of, of the quantitative easing. So for instance, it was in, in Canada, they were uh, making it so that it was more difficult to, to get a, a, a big mortgage. And, and this was really the effect of uh, macroprudential in, in other countries too. So there was a side effect insofar as wealth um, or asset prices rather were expanded people were chasing those house prices higher and then it was like well actually you can't have the mortgage so you cannot chase that house price higher and that was designed to give some control over the the the, the pace of acceleration of, of house prices but ultimately again we do have to turn our attention back to governments and what is government policy going to do to try and contain some of these side effects of monetary policy, or indeed in, 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 in countries such as Germany or countries such as New Zealand, Australia, what is the government going to do to be able to fine-tune the stimulus to where we need it yeah. without relying so much on the, on the, on the, very, uh, on the tools of, of monetary policy, um, which are very blunt? Jane, great to catch up with you. Jane Foley, really thoughtful staff for Rabobank Head of FX Strategy. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.